the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere. Sunny one so true. with one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is John Barber. That was Sarita singing Sonny and Frank Sinatra singing Here's Johnny, the night he hosted The Tonight Show. We're live from Las Vegas, where the good old days were when the mafia ran the place. It's uh, Monday, April 2nd, the day after Easter, Passover, and the gambler's big winner's day here, April Fool's. Everyone is talking about the new Roseanne Barr show, and even one of the one or two of them nicely especially Trump. It was his first complimentary phone call to a female since Stormy Daniels. Oh, and by the way, it was Trump himself who absolutely described himself more perfectly than anyone. It's in the new book about Trump. He was bringing a foreign model to Trump, uh, the Trump Casino in Atlantic City, flying her there. And she said she'd been warned when she got to America, where it's the first time that she was going to be there. there she, she was going to meet a lot of rednecks. So she asked Mr. Trump, what is a redneck? And Donald said, somebody like me without money. Anyway, ABC is trying to make this decade's version of All in the Family with Roseanne as a distaff, chunky Archie Bunker. But the difference is huge. Carol O'Connor as Archie was constantly kicking the government's ass. Roseanne is constantly kissing it. I personally cannot watch a real-life crude billionaire loudmouth pretending to be a crude poor loudmouth. The problem with the unreality of the show is it clashes with the reality of America. Roseanne's character is constantly complaining that they don't have enough money to pay for their, her husband's much-needed medications. And then at Grace, after dinner or before dinner, she thanks God for making America great again. Well, folks, a country that has a profit-only health system where the sick have to mortgage their homes to get an apendectomy, or a country that has a uh, student debt that is almost 10% of the 16 trillion national debt, a student debt that cannot be discharged by bankruptcy or death, is not a great country. It's a debtor's prison. It is, however, a country filled with great people. Sadly, none of them are politicians. Roseanne's show was watched by more people than watched the Oscars. And more Americans eat junk food than health food. In the show, Roseanne brings up fake news. Well, this 
is a fake sitcom. It's not a show. It's an agenda. But the one good thing, though, the one redeeming thing that may make it as a show is the endearing presence of John Goodman, a truly solid actor and a very decent man, much like my guest. For decades, my guest is and has been an extremely successful actor, producer, director, writer, and no-nonsense social activist, all with awards to prove it. He was a recipient of the Valentine Davies Award from the Writers Guild. His peers elected him first VP of the Screen Actors Guild, and he is only one of three people, not a judge or an attorney, to be recognized for his endeavors by the California Attorneys for Criminal Justice. It is all in his wonderfully written, engaging memoir, Just Call Me Mike, Journey to Actor and Activist. So we will just call him Mike after we happily and proudly welcome Mike Farrell. Mike, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. You're very kind, John. Thank you for the invitation and for the lovely uh, uh, introduction. Well, you know, I, I, I mentioned John, John Goodman. Um, you know, there uh, you you well know this as uh, as as an actor, but as someone who was a critic and saw thousands of movies, there are qualities that some actors have that you cannot learn and that you cannot fake. And I must tell you, I've only seen that quality in three people. One was John Goodman, whom I've just mentioned, and uh, one was Jimmy Stewart, uh, probably the most popular of the three. And the other is you. You oh. have a quality. All three of you have a quality of immense likability. No matter what kind of character you play, you just come across likable. I don't know if you remember a place in, in, in Santa Monica called The Horn. Uh, during the uh, uh, late uh, 60s, it was a place where Jim Neighbors got started. A lot of people got started there as an act. I worked there with Jim when he got his first job as uh, Gomer Pyle with Andy Griffith. And wow. he said to me, and when he, he said to me when he left, he said, John, one thing I learned about this town, it's better to be liked than be talented. And you know what, Mike? <laughs> you, you have that quality. So having that quality since some of your peers, or at least a couple of them, ran for public office twice. They, one, they both became governor in California and one president of the United States. You must have thought, you must have thought, and your wife and your kids or your friends must have encouraged you at one time to run for public office. Why did you not? The short answer is, why would you want to hang around with those people? <laughs> that, is, that, that, that is really really funny that is truly funny you know, okay so so let, let's get to the be beginning then how this all started for you tell me just a little bit about your family where you're from your siblings if you had any and was acting something that came to you because it's something you wanted to do when you were a youngster, or did you want to play ball for the Dodgers or do something else? <laughs> well, very quickly, born in St. Paul, South St. Paul, Minnesota. My folks moved here uh, because the streets were paved with gold, moved here to Los Angeles uh, 
when I was two years old, so I was actually raised here and consider myself a naturalized Californian. Um, I went through the public school system here, and um, in the in the process, uh, in the second grade, one of my um, I, I, we lived here. in what was what is now the city of West Hollywood. It was then it was a, uh, a count, an unincorporated county strip. But I went to West Hollywood Grammar School, and one of my classmates was a young girl named Natasha Gurdon. Maybe a name familiar to you. She became known as Natalie Wood. Um, oh my goodness gracious! Yes, yeah. and. Uh, so there was always, you know, living in West Hollywood, there was always, we were, we were right across the tracks from Beverly Hills. And as I grew up, um, I went to school with Ricky and Dave Nelson and with uh, uh, kids who wanted to be actors and kids who were actors. My dad worked in the studios as a carpenter. And um, there, there was always that sort of aura around the uh, the, the market we shopped at, you know, there sometimes you'd see uh, people that uh, uh, were well known um, in the market. Uh, my mother would comment on whether or not they were <laughs> they were uh, had bothered to shave. <laughs> and, and if we if we went to church uh, in in West Isle, in, in Beverly Hills, which was as I say right across the border. We'd see Danny Thomas and his daughters, and we'd see Ricardo Montalban, and we'd see, you know, actually John F. Kennedy at one point. Um, but there wow. was always this aura about the business, and my sister, I had an older sister, had one brother and one surviving sister. My older sister passed away, but Sally had um, movie magazines around the house, and I'd see these movie magazines and think, oh, God, you know, Young people are actors, and they get all this attention and this. What I thought then was love and attention and respect and all the things that I was hungry for, um, because in our family there was it was it was a, it was a pretty typical working class Irish Catholic family, and my dad was a hard working man who really didn't know uh, about how to be a. Uh, a loving father. He was a he was a strict, um, tough, two-fisted, too often um, not sober father. So I was I was looking for something, and and this idea of being an actor sort of planted itself in my head. And I thought, God, it'd be so great to be able to do that. But I was also a very shy kid, so. I was not. Well, you, um, st you still have the quality, of, and it's endearing. You still have the quality of shyness about you, even when you report, uh, perform. And it's sort of that likability. It's that Jimmy Stewart thing. It, it, it's something that you cannot fake. So, okay, now you're looking to be maybe like one of your peers. You're looking maybe to be loved and to get attention. When did you realize that often? This could be a fabulous art form, and that there were actors and actresses, I mean, who could really make a difference on the screen, a difference that could really affect your lives. Can you remember that moment, or was, or were the, was there such a moment? There was, and it was, an, um, it was an unusual one, at least to, I think it was unusual. Um, I, I went through the motions. My dad died when I was a teenager, so I never had the opportunity to 
to deal with the, all the feelings that I, uh, that I was nurturing, the anger and the frustration and the desires and the needs. Um, I got married when I was in my early 20s, which was too young. Um, I, I, after, right after high school, I joined the Marine Corps, and uh, after I got out of the Marines, um, uh, started thinking about maybe this dream of being an actor is something I would like to pursue. So I did, but it was, you know, you go to a, an actor's workshop. Most of it was, was walking down the street hoping somebody would discover me. <laughs> uh, but but I, I remember uh, talking to a kid, uh, another pal of mine from the Marines, was working at a gas station on Sunset and Doheny in West Hollywood right at the start of the Sunset Strip. And uh, I used to visit him at night. I was driving a truck at the time. And uh, a young fellow who was working with him was an, uh, a Canadian who'd come all the way out here from eastern Canada, Prince Edward Island, to become an actor. And I say, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've always wanted to be an actor. And he said, what, what are you doing about it? <laughs> I said, well, I, I, I don't know. What, what do you do about it? And he was in an actor's workshop at the time. And he said, come on down here. And I was just scared stiff. But I thought, well, I can go sit in the back row and listen and watch. So I did. And, you know, pretty soon I was coaxed out of the back row and down to the middle and then up to the front row. And pretty soon they had me up on stage trying to do things. And it was a very painful process because this, uh, this shyness was something that was... Uh, sort of ingrained in me. My dad's feeling was always, you know, don't get too big for your britches, young man. Um, so I, uh, but I, I learned that I could, you know, stand up in front of an audience and try to do lines and not cave in and <laughs> not fall to the floor in a faint. Um, and I watched and I listened and I went into another workshop and uh, met some people who were putting on a play and um, got a part in the play, uh, in which I was terrible, I'm quite sure. Um, but from that, I got an agent. Um, now, how, this, this, is, this is the key. Do you know there are some agents that, and managers that really do help make careers? And oh, one yeah. of the toughest things for an actor to do, because my next question was, if you're shy about performing, it must be god-awful painful for you to go out and knock on agents' doors and say, hey, I want to be an actor. Did yep. you do that, or did the agent find you? In this instance, the agent saw me in the play and thought I had the, some possibility. Um, it, it, I'll, I'll tell you what. He, I, I will never forget this. He sent me out on an interview for a job in a war movie. The movie starred Audie Murphy, and I was too oh tall. My. I was oh too my. tall, so I didn't get the part. Oh Next my. thing he sent me out for was a part in a, I think it was a television show, starring Fess Parker. <laughs> Fess Parker was too tall, and I was too short. <laughs> <laughs> The next one he sent me out for, I got the job because I was exactly the right size to fit into the gorilla suit. Oh, my God almighty. I, was on oh the, my on the, God! You know, on the Red Skelton show. You, how do you people keep going you know, after going <laughs> through stuff like that? It's that, just that's a it's good question. You know, my yeah, very, very, 
favorite book about show business is uh, Ben Hecht's autobiography, A Child of the Century. Ben Hecht had one time been a faltering actor, and he was a columnist, wrote front page. And uh, he wrote Gone with the Wind, never read the book. He only read a synopsis, wrote it in 12 days. But he told horrible stories about giving up being an actor. And these are your first three jobs, and they're not (laughs) right for you. How do you keep going? Oh, you know, the rejection is just part of the craft. You you learn that they're not rejecting you as a human being. At least you learn that later on. Uh, but at first, you're right. It's very painful. It's very hard. It's very harsh. Uh, I got a, uh, an agent. I, I, I told you I was driving a truck. I was standing on the corner waiting for the bus one day after after work, and a guy stopped his car and offered me a ride, and I took it, and he turned out to be an agent. And he, oh, he uh, do, do you know the name Henry Wilson? Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yes, he, he was Tab Hunter, and I believe That's Rock right. Hudson's agent. And Henry wanted to change my name to something clever, like he had done with Rock Hudson and Tab Hunter and uh, Touch Connors and <laughs> a number of people. Well, but he also, speaking, he also hold, wanted hold, to have... Hold it a second, Mike. Speaking of Touch, <laughs> did he take make a move on you? Oh, yes, yes. And when I oh, said my. no, when I said no thanks... Actually, it was um, he. Actually, he actually set me up for a for an interview with a, a, a producer of a film war movie, and I was you know, still real green around the around the edges. And the guy asked me a few questions about what work I had done, and I sort of confessed that I hadn't done much. And he he sort of said, "You understand." I know who sent you here. You understand what goes with this association. And I said, well, no, I don't understand it in the sense that um, if if it's what you're implying, I haven't agreed to anything, nor will I. And he said, well, you're going to be, you're not going to be a client for very long. And uh, so uh, very shortly after that, Henry made the proposition and I said, no. And he said, in this business, you're going to have to learn to cooperate with people like me or you will not get anywhere. Oh, my God. How discouraging. Um, well, that may be the case, but I'd rather take my chances. Thanks very much. And we said goodbye. Um, short, well, not shortly. There, so I went through a couple of years of the kind of rejection that we've just been talking about, getting nowhere. But... Learning in the process, I was still taking, you know, working with actors' workshops and uh, getting uh, a little better understanding, working in a little theater around the city. And I got married, and the marriage fell apart very shortly, very quickly. And I was, um, I was, uh, you, this may be more than you wanted to know, but I, I was really devastated by the fact that. I was doing everything I thought I was. My dad told me I was supposed to do. I was a good boy. I'd joined the service. I'd paid my debt to the country that way. I'd uh, fallen in love with this girl, and I was working hard. And I wanted to be this, be be successful at this craft I'd chosen. And um, I was just fractured by this um, by this experience of the of the marriage falling apart. And a friend directed me to a uh, 
what turned out to be a halfway house, a place where drug addicts and alcoholics and people with different kinds of problems, people out of mental institutions and prisons and people from the gutter, um, people my father would have thought of as undesirables, sort of throwaways, were all there trying to learn how to live their lives as, as straight people, as, as, as solid citizens, because they had, had no um, understanding in the circumstances of their lives and how to do that. And working with those people for a year, I discovered some things about myself that I, I you know, this, this child, this frightened kid, this um, person who really didn't know what he, who he was or what he was, um, but they asked some tough questions, and they taught me some really important things about the kind of things I was looking for, love and respect and attention and, and how every human being deserves it and every human being can earn it by being uh, up, straightforward, upright, thoughtful, honest, direct, uh, but mostly uh, honest. And, um, you, 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 know, you know what, Mike? I'll tell you something interesting. Have you ever heard of an attorney named Daniel Sheehan? Daniel Sheehan is probably America's greatest people's advocate. He defended the New York Times when they published the uh, Pentagon Papers, Iran-Contra, brought suit against the government, solved the oh, Karen Silkwood murder case. I had him on my show uh, two uh, two weeks ago, his background is exactly like yours. Irish really? Catholic family, a drunken father, and he realized quickly the American dream didn't work for him when he did all the things that you did that you were taught to do. And it's people like that who set out to change and correct the world. Now, right now, he's, he's involved with the uh, Lakota uh, Justice Project. Um, oh, sure. And, I know. And, I, know and, I know who Danny Sheehan is. Sure, he's phenomenal, and you have done the same thing. Okay, now, I always had the impression that you were almost an activist before you were an actor, but actually you weren't. Okay, you well, get out of this sort of this halfway house. Now you've changed your attitude about your life and where you're going, made you more aware of people. So when now you're still struggling as an actor. Do you recall the first time you took a step to be an activist about something in society? Oh yeah, uh, part you know some of it start because because of the rejection and the mm, the, the 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 feelings I had as a result of my relationship or non-relationship, if you will, with my dad. I always identified with the underdog. I always identified with powerless people who were victimized by powerful people. So during the civil rights movement, I started I started to get involved in um, things like going downtown here uh, when after the Watts riots and uh, getting involved with the social community, the, 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 the communities that were in need. Um, but I wasn't until I until I, I had that experience at the at the halfway house. I really I really kind of didn't come from a place of really understanding. I think um, what the uh, 
what what the, what the what the real job is that we have as people, as citizens, as human beings. What do we owe to each other? How we how we uh, live a, a really fulfilled and fulfilling life. Um, so it. It was interesting because a psychologist who was involved with that halfway house I described said to me one time, he said, this is not the reason for you to be here, but you've you've indicated you, you really have a desire to be an actor. He said, the work you're doing here will make you a better actor. And he was quite right because it made me understand that I'd, acting was something I'd been doing all my life. I'd been acting like I knew what I was doing when I didn't. Oh, how perfectly said. Oh, my yeah. goodness. You were pretending to be somebody you weren't, somebody. Exactly. Oh, exactly. my goodness gracious. Now, there comes a time, Mike, when you get a really deep, there might had to be a time. It's a double-edged question then. Um, did you think about quitting acting or was there a time when you felt, when you got one decent job, that you really could make a living at this, and that you were good at it. There was there were there were two things that happened. One was when I was involved with this halfway house, we went into prisons, and I saw how ugly and uh, uh, and demeaning and um, uh, the, the despair and the, the lack of spirit and the lack of uh, humanity that was demonstrated. Uh, by the people on in control of the people who were out of control, and I was I was offended by it. So that kind of helped propel me into more of the work I've done since that time. Um, and the same thing with the people who came out of mental institutions, and the same thing with people who came out of the uh, just off the streets, you know, junkies and alcoholics out of the gutter. But I came out of there with a sense of um, possibility, I guess, and a sense of purpose, but a, but a more of an understanding that, that I was a human being who deserved to be to be treated as a human being and deserved to be recognized as, as someone uh, who, by dint of existence, had deserves a certain amount of uh, respect and attention. And, and and I was different then when I went on an interview for a job because. I knew it wasn't uh, it wasn't going to make me or break me. Uh, I could take it or leave it. They could take me or leave me. They weren't going to hurt me. And when I and the attitude I guess that I came in with resulted in the fact that people saw me as somebody who they could trust to do the job that needed to be done. Um, so do you, I started you, to get. Do you, 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 do you recall your first really good job where you thought? Wow, I'm good at this, and I may be able to make a living at this. Uh, I remember a, a couple things. One, I, I, doing a play. You know, I, I did a play here in Glendale at a, and, and listening to people laugh when I did certain things, said certain things in a certain way, um, made me think. Oh God, you know, this is, this is fun. <laughs> and the fun the audience is having, and 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 some people make a living at this. <laughs> you know, I wasn't making any any money at the, in those plays, but I was I was having a wonderful time, and learning what the what the process was, 
And then I got a job. It was a television commercial, actually. And I had to say, uh, I've forgotten what the line was, but I had to say the line. And this fellow said, uh, oh, God, he said, I, I needed I needed a second and a half shorter. And I said, <laughs> okay. And I did it. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, you, you did it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that, that wasn't all that hard. And <laughs> um and that commercial ran, and it gave me, uh, uh, I got a check, a big check, from my, from my perspective, and I began to realize that, God, you can actually make a living doing this and um, and have fun at the same time. Well, but, I, as, a, as a critic, I've seen, of course, thousands of movies, but I saw two in which you had a very, very small part. Oh, it was It was... Um, Dustin Hoffman's first role, it was in The Graduate. <laughs> yep. And then I think it was Patty Shayevsky's second best movie next to uh, Network. I, I think it was the Americanization of Emily. That's right. And you just, it, it was brief, but here was this really likable person on the screen. But oh, you weren't sweet. there long. That, that's remarkable that you remember that. that is, uh, that's very touching. I was thrilled. I was I was in the company of Dustin Hoffman, who I had no idea who he was, Mike Nichols, Ann Bancroft. Are you kidding me? Catherine Ross, and I was just a kid, you know, hungry to get a job. And here I was in in the same same arena with these people, and with Americanization of uh, uh, with Americanization of Emily. Is that the one you said? Yes, uh, with Jimmy Garner, I think it was, and then uh, the, the the singer, the girl uh, from Camelot, what was her name? Oh, Julie yeah. Andrews. Her, Julie, Julie Andrews. And, and was James, wonderful uh, film. Wonderful uh, film. James Coburn. We yes. we were sta- we were standing. We were waiting to go on. I was waiting to go on and do my line. I think a line. And um, Coburn walked by, and he said, "How you doing, kid?" And I said, "Fine, Mr. Coburn. How are you?" He said, "I'm doing great, man. Just keep 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 cooking there." Oh God! <laughs> and, but you know, can you imagine? I mean, how tall are you? About six four, six three? Six three, yeah. Okay. Imagine Dustin Hoffman, though. I mean, he was only like <laughs> five six and a half. Yeah. I mean, and he looks. He he doesn't look wasp at all, and nope. the reason that Mike hired him is because he was a nervous wreck, and he <laughs> wanted the character to be that. Now, if you think about what you were going through, imagine what Dustin must have thought. Oh starring my God. in the oh, yeah. movie for God's sake, it must have been must have been horrifying for him. So, what I want to do is I want to leapfrog a bit and bring you up to the business of. Of writing because you really, really are an excellent, excellent writer, and I've you know, Betty Davis and a lot of great performers said the worst thing about movie acting is the waiting. So obviously, when you started to work a lot, you got on soap operas, and of course, you were an absolute smash on 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 Mash. When you got to do these things and had to sit around, was it boredom that made you an actor? Was it ambition or it made you a writer? Was it ambition that made you a writer? Or was it, I can do this, write this better th- than this, that made you a writer? What turned was, you into uh, a writer? I was 
uh, under contract, I, was, I did a soap, as you suggested, and then from there went to Screen Gems because I got a job. And I, I had done a play, and the fellow who wrote the, this pilot for the series um, uh, had me in mind for the role of one of the interns in a television series with Brad Crawford called The, in, the Interns. Um, and after that, when that only lasted a year, I was uh, asked to come and meet about a series with Anthony Quinn at Universal. And I thought, my God, the opportunity to work with Anthony Quinn would be beyond belief. But it involved a, 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 a contract, a term contract, seven-year contract at Universal, which I didn't particularly like. But the idea, you know, when they offered me the part, I thought, Jesus, you know, the opportunity to work with Quinn would be, you just can't turn that down. And I figured if the show was canceled, as I expected it to be, because Quinn was too big for television, um, that I figured they'd just let my contract go. But they didn't. Um, so I stayed under contract at Universal for another three years. And in that time, I got an opportunity to do a lot of shows and I and and turned a lot of them down because the writing was so bad. And I kept thinking, these guys are writing for radio. They're not writing for television. They're not seeing that you, you don't have to say these things because people are seeing it on film. They don't have to, they don't have to, they don't have to um, say the obvious. And I started thinking about uh, writing as a result of that, 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 that there was a, uh, that there were ways in which you could do more with less. Um, so I started just trying to write things, and um, when I, uh, I I wrote a pilot that uh, sort of sold but didn't, <laughs> you know those stories. Um, and then when I when I got the show on when I got the I used to sort of rewrite my parts on the different shows I did, and the writers never bothered to correct me, or they actually a couple of them thanked me. And um, when I got the job on MASH, um, I, I, I had an idea one time. I said, hey, there's just an idea here for a, for, a, for a show. And I talked to Bert Metcalf, who was our, one of the producers of the show at the time. Wasn't and that Larry's show, Larry Gelbhardt's show? That, Larry, Larry was the, the genius writer of, the, of all time, and he was the, he was the, he was the man on the show, but, um, I just, Bert was on the set and I just mentioned, um, the possibility. I said, I've got an idea for a show. And, um, he, he, um, he, um, he said, I, I told him what the idea was. He said, Oh, that's a great idea. Why don't you write it? And I thought, wow. Oh my God, I can't, I, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think I can write anything that's of the quality that these guys do. And he said, go ahead, just give it a shot and we'll bring it into the room and, you know, people will talk to you about it. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I did. And, uh, that was, that was the beginning of, uh, of, uh, sorry, somebody's trying to call me here. Um, uh, that was the beginning of the opportunity to do, more writing on the show, and the same thing happened with directing. I said to, at one point, I said to Bert, who was then by then the exec producer, I said, you know, I've been watching and paying attention, and 
I'd like to give it a shot. And he said, absolutely, let's go. And so it ended up my doing and directing a number of the shows as well. Uh, well, that's a that's a perfect background in which to mount the next question because it's all a springboard to a really, really nice film that you produced. Um, uh, Patch Adams, I believe it was called, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when they did the revival of uh, Laugh-In, I was uh, one of the principal writers. There were four of us writing the shows, and I was a critic at large on camera for about a minute. But that was a show that introduced three amazing talents, and one of them was Robin Williams. Yeah. And Robin, yeah. Robin, of course, is this volcanic comic genius only comparable to Jonathan Winters. So how did the that movie come about? Because it seemed to me it sums up all the feelings that you have as a person and as an actor and as a director and a writer all in one film and all showcased by Robin Williams. So tell me how that came about and what it was like working with Robin. And did you see any signs of any personal problems or emotional problems with Robin? Well, it's a, there's a, a long story there. I, I, I met Robin years earlier, um, just casually, and got to know him a little bit. Um, the Patch story came about because um, Shelley and my wife and I uh, were part of a uh, peace uh, track to diplomacy a mission to the Soviet Union in 1985. Um, and it was a, a group of people put together by a psychologist who wanted to bring people from a, many different walks of life to meet people in Russia uh, to kind of try to uh, counter some of the impact of the Reagan administration's, you know, the, uh, the uh, Russia is evil kind of notion that Reagan was pitching at the time. And so we we were part of this outfit and and we went into to uh to uh Russia but before we did we we all met in Finland and just got to know each other and one of the people that I met was this man named Patch Adams. Oh my. I, when I first saw him I first of all I was a little concerned about some of the people who were a little loosey goosey in <laughs> in their approach to life uh and I saw this guy and he was all he was he was half dressed as a clown, and I thought, oh shit! There, I mean, probably can't say that on the air. Sorry. I thought, this this is going to be trouble. But there was this um, I don't know if you can talk time for the brief story, but there was this woman who was a kind of a new agey type who was talking about uh, she was up there on a kind of platform talking about herself and the work she does. And she said, I brought with me a bunch, a, a, a bag of crystals, very powerful crystals. <laughs> and I want each of you, these crystals have great energy and they will, they will enhance your, cooper, your, your communication with the people that you meet on the other side. And if, I want each of you to come up here and pick a crystal with which you resonate and put it next to your heart. And when you go into the Soviet Union, if you meet someone that you connect with, I want you to give them that crystal. And I thought, oh my God, this—we're going to—we're going to all be arrested and <laughs> thrown, thrown in the dungeon there. 
Anyway, the next person up was this guy that I had seen dressed as a clown. And he introduced himself as Patch Adams. He's a medical doctor who believes in the that laughter is the best medicine. And he right. said, uh, he said, and I brought with me a bag of rubber noses. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I want each of you to come up here and pick a rubber nose with which you resonate, and keep it. <laughs> he, he did a perfect, perfect lampoon on this woman. And it just, I felt in love. I thought, this guy oh, is my fabulous. God. That's wonderful. So we got to know each other. We became the best of friends. And uh, some years later, Patch uh, wrote a book, and he called me, and he said, Mike, people want me to, they want me to make a movie. And he said, I don't want anybody. I was in, I was in movie production at that time. My partner and I had made uh, Dominic and Eugene, which is probably the picture I'm most proud of. Um, wonderful. But, uh, and, We'd made a, a, a few pictures for television and uh, Dominic and Eugene as the feature. And then uh, he said, I want you to do this one. And I said, Patch, I, you know, we don't have the kind of clout that many people have in the business. And, and you need somebody who's a big gun. He said, no, you're the guy I want. So uh, I said, well, OK, let me let me run with it. And I did. I sold it to Universal. And um we uh, we put it together. Um, I was, you know, Robin was the automatic choice. Robin was the perfect choice for Patch. And um, there, are, there are a lot of ugly stories associated with the way deals are made and how the, direct, how the director um, was not honest with us and uh, all those stories. But... Yeah, we, we we got the essential patch story told, which made me feel good. And Patch is very grateful. We're still friends to this day. But we didn't get the full patch story told, and that's because um, the, the the changes I wanted in the picture, um, the director didn't want, and uh, the director had more clout than I did. So oh we got a more, God, oh got a more superficial God. patch. But you know what? Kudos, kudos to Patch as a person, because yeah. anybody else in his place would have gone to the highest bidder instead yeah. of looking for the person like yourself who could have made the film that he wanted made. And you talk about the the the, the deals. You know, one of the things that killed Jimmy Garner. I knew him quite uh, well. His brother was a golf pro, and we used to hit balls all the time at Studio City. And Jimmy Garner's Rockford Files must have made billions for Universal. Yeah. And he sued them because he didn't get his share as the profit. Right. And Universal was able to prove that they did not make a profit on that series. I mean, it's just, I mean, the accountants are most the most creative people in that business. Anyway, you know what, Mike? We have run 15 minutes over time. And oh, I'm we, sorry, John. No, that's not your. We could have gone another 45 minutes, another hour. I could talk show business with you endlessly because I've got so many things to ask you about. In another six or eight weeks, would you mind coming back? Oh, I'd love to. Oh, God. We have so many things to talk about. I mean, I just have a million questions. It's just sitting around talking to somebody who really knows and who has been there. And I must tell you, 
America is really getting tougher and tougher to survive in. But I oh, must man. tell you, you are you are an inspiration. And oh, I would suggest thank you. I would suggest anybody, anybody who can, and everybody is going through problems, but anybody who can afford it, go out and get your book. Where can they get it? The cheapest. Um, you know, I assume it's it's in secondhand stores by now, but uh, they can get it at Akashic, Akashic Books uh, is the publisher out of New York. How do you Brooklyn spell Nation. that? How do you spell it? A-K-A-S-H-I-C, Akashic. Okay, and the uh, name of the book, go ahead. I introduced it. Go ahead. The Just name of the call book. me Mike, A Journey to Actor and Activist. Well, Mike, you are an absolute delight and a joy, and I will be calling you in, in another six or eight weeks, and we are going to continue this conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I hate to say goodbye because I have so many things. <laughs> You're very asking. sweet, John. It's, it's <laughs> anyway, good. thank you so much again. My very best to your wife, and thank I you. want to get to that story the next time we talk, okay? Okay. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with Joe Satilli. Great music from all the greatest performers from sunup to sundown. How do you keep the music playing at last? Well, on the sea. Then, great talk all night. The mysteries of UFOs, conspiracy theories, and the true story of Las Vegas that has never been told. There are three ways to listen to KIYQ. Go to the TuneIn amp, just search for KIYQ, or go to www.kiyq.org. Listen from any telephone, call 605-477-2857. That's 605-477-2857. Long distance charges may apply. KIYQ 107.1. Hi, I'm Richard Bowser. This is the great BBS Radio. Thank you. Hi, this is John Barber. You may remember me as the co-host, producer, and creator of Real People, America's first reality show, or most recently as the writer-director of what's been called the definitive documentary on JFK's murder, The Last Word on the Assassination. Now I'm doing a show every other Monday from 5 to 6 Pacific Time on BBS. You'll hear provocative views, unreported news, and film reviews from me with outstanding guests and you. Join me on John Barber's World. Hello, this is John Barber telling you about the long-running hit TV series Criminal Minds now in its 13th year. Criminal Minds explores the work of talented FBI profilers who seek to unravel crime cases through behavioral profiling. Follow the efforts and lives of these elite profilers as they analyze the nation's most dangerous criminal minds in an effort to anticipate their next moves before they strike again. Criminal Minds airs Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central. A must-see. Don't miss it. Bye now.
You're listening to BBS Radio. If it's not mainstream, it's on bbsradio.com. Welcome back live to John Barber's World. That Oh, my goodness. Mike was just so wonderful, and I can't wait to have him back again. When he comes back again at the very top of the show, I'm going to have Joe Satilli co-interview uh, uh, co him because Joe is really knowledgeable about films yeah, and but everything. John, that would be like auditing a, a, you know, a graduate seminar on TV. So I'm happy no, to sit no. in you because I, the television. So. I feel I feel dreadful when I run over a half hour and cut you short. Anyway, what was that wonderful clip you sent me from your news vandal about Trump? And then again, first your comments about Mike, and then well, yeah, your let's, let's start there because you started the show with Roseanne, and Roseanne <laughs> is being hailed as this big hit, biggest audience share. In I think like like seven years at 18 million. Let's just marvel for a second at the final episode of Mash, which got a, got 50 million homes, 50 million, not 18, 15. It was a 60.2 rating <laughs> with a 77 share. And John, for those people who are not familiar with television, what does a 77 share mean? Three quarters of everybody watching in America is watching, and there are only three networks. That's at the it. 77% of all the televisions in America, all the households in America, were watching MASH on that night. That's that's a that's a hit. You know what I mean? That's you know, that is, is eight million, and that's fine. And I get it because we're in a segmented market and everything. And I, I, you know, did you watch both of the Roseanne episodes that that aired? It was sort of basically like an hour package. No, no, I, I, I'm very, very, very honest. Absolutely not. I read all about it, and as I said in the introduction, personally, I cannot watch a crude, <laughs> loudmouth billionaire <laughs> pretending to be a poor loudmouth. So I mean, well, I mean the, the, you can see why she and Trump identify with one another, which brings me oh, right a crude, yeah. loud mouth billionaire who's pretending. <laughs> anyway, this thing this morning. So there's this group of of migrants who is moving out of Central America in across Mexico and towards the border. And it's being done kind of as a protest march, as a demonstration. There are a bunch of immigration lawyers there. They're going to go through the process at the border and so on. And it's being done to make a point, but Fox aired this segment uh, on yesterday where they talked about caravans of migrants, the hordes, they're coming across the plains of Mexico to invade America. And so this turned into Trump saying that DACA is off. We have to build the wall. The migrant caravans are coming. Everybody, you know, put your wives in the basement and, you know, make sure, you know, get your guns out and make sure you give money to the NRA because you're going to need those guns to kill them. Hordes of migrants that are coming. And he said they this is why our country is being stolen. And I think of all of the things that rub me the wrong way about Trump's salesmanship as a politician. It's the idea that the reason why Americans are struggling, struggling economically and have struggled economically is because foreign interlopers and conniving Chinese and 
and cunning Germans and Japanese and Koreans and all these people around the world have conspired to steal America's wealth. Russia when, too, Russia too. Russia too. Everybody's conspiring to steal America's wealth when actually anybody who does not have their head lodged in their lower intestine knows that it was corporate America that stole the wealth. It wasn't China stealing. They didn't send, you know, Chinese, you know, they didn't Shanghai American jobs. Remember Shanghaiing, right? Remember that was a whole thing in the tw in the, in the 20th century. You don't yes. want to get Shanghai. They'll come and they'll take you in. They'll get you drunk on the docks and then they'll put you on a <laughs> ship and you're going to ship for the next six months. That's not yeah. what happened to American jobs. Corporations like Walmart realized that they could maximize their bottom line by shipping jobs overseas. And also Wall Street catalyzed it because Wall Street realized they could stoke in the short term on a quarter by quarter basis profits by cutting the one part of the overhead that was the most malleable, and that's the cost of labor. Yes. Americans lost their jobs to their fellow Americans. And this is this scapegoating that Donald Trump does to create this sort of cloud, this cloud of sort of you know ethnocentric American first ideology around his supporters is to me one of the most galling things, and that's what I wrote about today. Well, you want to know something? It just occurs to me. You're a much better, you know, James Colbert does a nice job in faraway Japan, okay, with the Corbett Report. Right. And there are a couple of admirable people who do the same thing, and none of them living in America. You write better than all of them. You're more articulate than, and verbal, and you have a much better voice than all of them. What you should do, I must tell you, there are, pro you know, who, who knows how many millions of Americans vote, maybe 40 million, 20 million are for Trump and 20 million are for somebody else. You should do every week a video rant about Trump because <laughs> nobody, nobody is better at it than you. Nobody knows more about the economics of it than you because the economics are everything. Now, you're going to meet a lot of haters, but I'm telling you, if you could monetize that, you could be rich. You know, I don't know their names, but uh, 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 the lady that rents our house in Arizona was a big fan of these two black girls who were all pro-Trump before yeah. the election. Yeah. And they monetized everything and they got rich. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, were, you know, when, when, Mike, when, when Mike Farrell and Daniel Sheehan were, were making their ways, they're like, how can I make a difference in the world? And that's so 20th century, because in the 21st century, it's how could I monetize myself? <laughs> oh, God, that's so brilliantly said. Well, that's, these two girls were totally inarticulate, but they knew how to uh, talk favorably about Trump and coming from Sold black, it. Yep. it made it more endearing to people who like Trump, like Jeff Rents. Yeah. But there are yeah. those who, huh? oh, those who, who loathe him like Daniel Sheehan, you should do that. You should do once a week, a three or four minute anti-Trump rant, which would like Howard Beale. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, here's the thing is it's not necessarily anti-Trump because I think Trump is actually the president president. Oh, okay, that you know what? Deserves. Okay, but then it's, it's, it's 
It's not okay. It's, it's not anti-fog that Trump is creating out of his flatulent right. mind. What it is, it's not anti-Trump. It's about Trump. Okay, and the system. We've got to go. We're out of time. Oh, Joe, uh, you're going to be on in two weeks. Yeah. And folks, get news, Vandal. And as Ed Murray used to say, good night and good luck. Yeah. Sunny, 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 sunny.